remain standing and open your Bible. And it is enough to know that Jesus is King. That it is enough to know that, not just because we believe it, but because it's true. Because he is exalted above all heaven and earth, that every principality and power and might and dominion is placed at his feet, that he is given all authority under heaven and earth. And so every obstacle, every adversary that confronts us in our life, every stress and strain and burden beyond what we can bear, we can bring to him and know that he exercises absolute authority. And we rest right there. Praise the Lord for that. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14 is our sermon text today. I've titled this message, All Leaves, No Fruit, on the topic of hypocrites and hypocrisy. Reading out of the English Standard Version, listen to the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we, we do praise you for your lordship and sovereignty and your great love for us. God, we marvel at those companion truths that you who created all things out of nothing, who order them according to the purpose of your will and your good counsel, that you set your love upon us and made us your very own. And so God, we come to you today even through your word, we come attuning our ear to your voice as Lord and as Father. We come expecting, now as always, that you have something fresh to say to us in it. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good always. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument according to your will for your people in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, as a school administrator years ago, I used to get calls occasionally from upset parents, and uh, every once in a while, those calls were about something that had allegedly happened with a teacher. I say allegedly because it may have been they heard it from their child. It may have been they overheard something or even read a note or an email and, and sort of had a certain interpretation or understanding of that. Uh, but a few of those allegations, just a handful, were so out of character for a particular teacher uh, that it, it left me saying, to this parent, I, you know, I know that teacher personally. Uh, she's taught here a long time. There's a lot of testimony about her character and professionalism and effectiveness and all that kind of thing. Um, this is so out of character what you're saying. 
perhaps there's another explanation. And uh, I, I think probably just about always in those most extreme cases, it turned out there was some other explanation. Well, this account of Jesus cursing the fig tree is a little bit like that. Because on the surface, it may strike uh, a reader, especially reading it for the first time, as, wow, this is, this is a little, sounds a little unusual. That sounds out of character. Maybe there's some other explanation than what uh, it seems on the surface that means. Well, this happens, of course, right on the heels of the triumphal entry. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem um, to the the shouts of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the Sunday before his crucifixion, which we observe today and uh, every year as Palm Sunday. There was a lot of fanfare and rejoicing on that particular day, but in practical terms, it turned out to be a reconnaissance mission. He arrived in Jerusalem late in the day. He went into the temple, uh, sort of got the scope of things, scoped things out, and then he went back outside the city to Bethany where he spent the night that night. And then it's on his way back into Jerusalem the following day that this episode of the cursing of the fig tree happens. And as I was implying earlier, by itself, this event sounds so bizarre. The average person reading this who knows anything about Jesus is left asking, why would he do that? I hope it's okay to be this honest. Because, um, f- frankly, we, we need to know how do, we, how do we deal with scriptures that strike us that way. In fact, it's good when they leave us asking questions. It sends us searching for answers. But why would he do that? Because it sounds at first blush like he's mad at the tree. Like he's just in a bad mood, he's had a bad day, he's hungry, he sees a tree that looks like it has some fruit, turns out not to have some fruit, so he curses the tree. I mean, it's like maybe some of you who are golfers, you shank the ball into the woods and then you throw your club into the pond as if it was the club's fault. Right, and, and so we read it almost that way, like Jesus is, is just having a bad day. I, I remember somebody um, referring to this passage and to Jesus that way to me before, like even Jesus has a bad day. Well, no, I'll preview. That's not what's going on. But it, but it, it strikes people that way. You know, maybe his stomach's growling and his, his, his blood sugar's dropping a little bit and he, he, he goes hoping to find some figs. There are no figs and he just loses it. And that sounds so completely out of character for Jesus to be in a bad mood and to curse a tree. And it is out of character for Jesus, and that's not what's happening here. Aren't you glad to know? But in our attempts to understand what is happening here or in other kind of difficult texts, there there are a number of principles we need to apply when understanding the Scriptures, trying to come to a right understanding of the Scriptures. Um, But here in particular, two that are of... Uh, special importance is number one that we interpret the scripture we interpret a passage in light of in the context of the whole Bible and second that we interpret the verse of the passage in light of its immediate context the verses and and the passages surrounding that the Bible is not written in verses right much less one or two or three verses at a time it's written uh depending on the genre of literature, it's, it's written as either 
letters with a continuous thought. It's written as historical narrative and so forth, written as, as poetry and so on. But we interpret it in light of the whole Bible. We interpret it in light of the context of sin. And when we read this passage, when we, when we try to understand it in light of the whole Bible, two of the things that shine light on this is, is first that the fig tree, uh, along with the vine, is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor for Israel. Over and over and over, God refers to Israel, his people, as the fig tree and as the vine. He uses other trees at times too. Uh, Then in the New Testament, if we read this passage in light of what we know elsewhere in the New Testament, it may come to mind that this is the only act on Jesus' part, this is, this is Jesus' only act of, of judgment and destruction in the New Testament. Have you thought about it that way? Almost all the time, we see Jesus healing and restoring, making whole what was broken, right? Making new what was old and so forth. This is the only passage of its sort. And then when we read the, the, the passage in its immediate context, um, we realize that this episode concerning the fig tree is very much related to the events that follow in the cleansing of the temple. And if you look in your Bible, you probably see a heading in the beginning of verse 15 um, that says that Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. He is, in fact, when this happens, he's on his way to the temple. On Palm Sunday, he came in. Late in the day, he scopes out the temple. He goes back to Bethany, and he's on his way back in to the temple when he passes by the fig tree. And New Testament scholars have pointed out that Mark's gospel uses a literary technique that they call a Markin sandwich. Markin because it's something that Mark does. But a sandwich in the sense that he will tell two stories and the second story is sort of inserted into the first. And so rather than trying to explain that any further, if you look at this as an example of it, again, in your Bible, if you, if you have headings um, in these passages, you'll see fig tree, temple, fig tree. You see that? As you go from verses 12 through 14, it's a, he tells a little story about the fig tree. Then he tells about the cleansing of the temple. Then he comes back to the fig tree. The fig tree is the bread, the temple, is the meat. And this is something Mark does in multiple places. And the point in even going there is to say um, the meat helps, underst- helps make sense of the bread in the Mark and sandwich. If we're, if we're to interpret rightly what's going on with the fig tree, we have to see what's in between the fig tree accounts and what happened at the cleansing of the temple. So what happened with the fig tree is related to what happened with the temple. Specifically, the cursing of the fig tree is a a living parable of sorts. Rather than Jesus telling a story about a fig tree that showed leaves out of season but bore no fruit, he sees one and he just sort of acts out the parable, if you will. It's a living parable. He teaches a lesson uh, by, by demonstrating it and making a point here. And the point of the parable is this that God's people, Israel, had the appearance of godliness, but there was no real fruit to them and no real fruit to nourish others. The, The temple that Jesus would go and cleanse 
uh, in, in one account says uh, that the house of God was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And of course, it had been made a den of robbers instead. God had a plan through his people to bless the nations, to, to spiritually nourish, that there would, be, there would be fruit flowing out of his people that would feed the nations. And, and the people of Israel had the appearance of godliness, but there's no real fruit to nourish others. And therefore, they were coming under God's judgment. That is what's getting ready to unfold. It's what the cleansing of the temple forecasts. And, and it goes from uh, cursing the fig tree to cleansing the temple to clashing with the religious leaders to his crucifixion. And of course, that crucifixion was not uh, a pointless death either, right? He accomplished something on the cross and through his resurrection that in fact put to an end uh, this false worship. But the people, the people of God, so-called, were all leaves and no fruit. They have the appearance of godliness, but there's no fruit to nourish anybody from it. And much of Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders was over that very issue. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you remember that language? If you've read the Bible, he says it repeatedly. So this whole passage most directly is about the coming judgment upon Israel. Uh, Jesus is going to put to an end this temple system of worship. Decades later, uh, the, the very city will be destroyed, including the temple. But even in that, even though this is about that judgment, about the hypocrisy of Israel, about the coming judgment of Israel, there's an abiding principle that applies to followers of Christ right on down through the ages because you probably know that this was not the end of hypocrisy. Are you aware that there are still hypocrites in the 21st century? None of them go here, thank God. <laughs> But the outward life of a Christian, here's really the, the abiding principle, that the outward life of a Christian ought to reflect a genuine inward change. That what we show outwardly, what we say outwardly, what we advertise outwardly ought to point to a real genuine inward change that not only we've experienced, but that Jesus offers to the world. And they ought to find something that would nourish their soul when they come to the believer or to the church. And so let's do a quick examination of the leaves and the fruit in our own lives. The leaves, first of all, is just again, sort of a metaphor here for the outward life. Because all the ways that we uh, publicly, visibly and audibly worship God, talk about God, make known to anybody in our life, in the world, that we are worshipers of the one true God, all the ways that we do that, sort of advertises that we have spiritual nourishment to offer. And you know, there are some people who assume that, even if they're unbelievers, there are people who, who know enough about, just enough, 
about Christianity to know when they really fall on desperate times, they can go crawling into the church, so to speak, on their hands and knees. They don't even know really what they're searching for. They just expect to find some answers from people who claim to have them. What are some of the ways that we advertise that we have uh, spiritual nourishment to offer? Sort of like um, a, a gas station that invites people to stop there. You know, you don't, a, a gas station doesn't need to have any kind of flashing sign that says, stop here and get gas. It doesn't need to have any kind of special offer on it. It just has to say there's gas, here's the gas prices, there are gas pumps there, and, and if I need gas, that's where I'm going to stop. If I'm driving on the highway, uh, I might, uh, might pull over to the side of the road because I certainly wouldn't open up my phone while I'm on the highway. Or I might have a passenger uh, do this for me, but <laughs> on Google Maps, just search for gas. I, that's all I need to know. I, I don't need to know much else. I might want to know what part of town I'm pulling off the highway into, but I just need to know it has gas. Because the very fact that it's a gas station advertises, invites me to stop and get gas there. How infuriating it is to stop at a gas station that has no gas. You ever done that? It's just, they're all out of gas. Well, that, that would be a good sign. If you're gonna advertise something on a flashing sign, that would be it. We're all out of gas. But it's sort of like that. We don't, we don't, have, to, we don't have to even overtly say, come to me, come to us, to the world. The very fact that we identify ourselves as the people of God issues that invitation. And it is, by the way, the plan of God that the, that the people of God would offer an invitation to the world to come to him. And that when they come, there would be something of real fruit to offer them. Well, what are some of those ways that we advertise that? Well, it's just performing uh, sort of our exercises of religious worship, all the expressions of worship. Um, even right now, the fact that we're here, there are cars in the parking lot. There's a big steeple on top of the building. It's pretty conspicuous. It says, this is a church people are worshiping here. We advertise something about ourselves as the people of God. Our Bible knowledge that we might spout and talk about as if we uh, know the truth and believe the truth and have truth to offer to other people, the way that we just talk the Christian talk. There are all kinds of ways like that, that publicly, again, in a visible or audible way, we, we sort of identify ourselves as God's people and sort of make an advertisement. And those are good things. Our worship, our Bible knowledge, our talking about the Christian faith, those are good things if they uh, really are the product of a new creation. As Bucky cited last week, if you were here, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, if we really are new creations. And out of that uh, grows worship, uh, declaration, proclamation, invitation. If all of that flows out of, uh, grows out of the, the, a new creation, then that's a good thing. But the challenge for us is the same as the challenge for the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, that we're prone to have the outward signs of godliness but lack any real fruit. There's always a tendency. You know, you never, you never outgrow the vulnerability to drifting right back into that pattern, right? Does everybody know that? That any of us in the room can have the real 
fruit in us just dry up and decay and what's left is just external talk and expressions of worship that actually um, at some point become worse than not even having any expressions of worship at all because it's deceptive to the world. We're better off um, not identifying ourselves as Christians at all if what they get when they come to us is poison rather than fruit. But hypocrisy was arguably, as I kind of implied earlier, the cause of Jesus' uh, sharpest criticism of the Pharisees. In uh, Matthew chapter 23, I, I sort of alluded to this earlier, there are seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. But in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, it says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And, and it was true that, again, if you've read the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, you know that was the point, the sort of maybe the number one point of challenge and confrontation uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And today, still, one of the biggest objections that unbelievers have to Christianity, objections they have to the Christian faith, is that the church is full of so many hypocrites. Now, we could, we could actually take issue even with that criticism to a certain degree um, because sometimes there's a, a, a standard applied uh, to Christians' expectations of uh, you know, perfection or whatever that's just unreasonable. But it ought to convict us rather than offend us that that is true. Um, I heard R.C. Sproul say that he wrote a book called um, Objections Answered. He was asked to do so by the people who used to lead evangelism explosion, the evangelism sort of course or whatever. And they had heard the common objections to the Christian faith. They came up with the top, top 10 and asked him to write a book about it. And one of them was, there's so much hypocrisy in the church. It ought to be less true we have reason why it ought to be less true anyway uh, because of what Jesus has done for us and yet we're, we're still prone to that temptation that we would have leaves but not fruit. And so we might say there on that point that if we, if we, uh, if we know we've got really pretty green leaves and not much uh, fruit to boast in, the good news is Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to save, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't come to bring judgment. Even now, every time we find our place wandering from him, gone astray and wayward once again, that there is in him always grace to help in time of need. There's always forgiveness to be found. But our leaves, we need to be aware, are advertising like a gas station. Come, come in, come in. We've got something for you. And so then the follow-up question is, do we, do we have the fruit uh, that those leaves promise? Do we, in other words, uh, reflect, do our leaves 
reflect, our outward lives reflect an inward change. And Jesus said a lot about the subject of fruit, as did the rest of the New Testament. I mean, it's, it is, again, a metaphor that runs through the New Testament, fruitfulness as a metaphor for just real spiritual life. In Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, he said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. You want to know something about tree? the tree? Look at the fruit. Nobody, in, in season, in fruit season, nobody ought to have to walk up right next to the fruit tree and ask it what kind of fruit tree it is. We ought to be able to stand back and see the fruit, smell the aroma of the fruit. And so it goes for the people of God. John 15, 16, really all of John 15 uses this sort of metaphor of uh, we're, he's the vine, we're the branches, right? That we have to abide in him. Without him, we can do nothing. But he says in verse 16 of that chapter, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. We have been appointed as followers of Jesus, as ambassadors of Jesus, to bear fruit. It goes hand in glove with the Great Commission, with discipleship of Jesus, that we would be fruit bearers. Philippians 1.11 refers to uh, the fruit of righteousness. Colossians 1.10 refers to the fruit of good works. And Galatians 5.22 and 23 refers to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what's supposed to grow out of us. And of course, we don't produce it. The fruit comes from the root. The tree determines what kind of, of fruit is going to be produced here. But that's, what, uh, that's what's supposed to be presented to, offered to a, a spiritually hungry world. The fruit of love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're, we're to be like the guy at the ballpark who walks through the crowd selling peanuts and popcorn. If you've been to you know, a baseball game, maybe a minor league baseball game, You've maybe seen that guy just walking down, peanuts, popcorn, peanuts, popcorn. And so the, the people of God, the followers of Jesus are supposed to be walking through the world just advertising joy, peace, 
love, kindness. Some of those have been in short supply or shorter supply in this last year. As the unbelieving world looks to the church as a source of their spiritual uh, hunger, do they find fruit? As, as they look to the church, advertising that sort of provision, do they find fruit? Do, when they get up close enough to us, do they smell the aroma of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on? Well, it, it was interesting to run across this Barna study, and I don't know if you have that uh, slide up top there, um, if so, if you'll put it up. But um, this was a Barna study from, from 2019. It's, a, it's maybe a little bit hard to make out, and you can, you can try to study that as I'm explaining this. 2019, it's interesting to think about this. This doesn't even take into account 2020. I mean, I think 2020 wrecked perceptions of everything. Every, whatever the survey said before 2020, you need to redo the survey because we have changed our mind about one another. But this asked about, this asked a variety of questions about perceptions of evangelicals. They asked evangelicals, what's our perception of ourselves? We think pretty highly of ourselves, is what this says. And they asked um, other Christians who are not um, evangelicals and other just non-Christians of, of, of every category. There were actually a lot more than the five I've put here, but I, 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 I pulled these out because they in some ways sort of correlate with the fruit of the Spirit. That people who, who really have the fruit of the Spirit would be caring, hopeful, friendly, encouraging, generous, and so forth. Those are the, some of the descriptors on the survey. And what, what this shows, if you can't read, the, the numbers themselves aren't that important, is to say, evangelicals, we think of ourselves as being quite caring, hopeful, friendly, encouraging, and generous. Non-Christians do not on this survey. Now, we ought not to make, again, too much of that because Jesus even said, the world will hate you because it hated me. Um, and there can, be, there can be all kinds of things like how, how does the person responding define caring and hopeful? What does that look like? And we know that we live in a world where uh, Christians have very different definitions or standards of, of what's good and what's bad and, and, and then, uh, than the non-Christian world too. There's, there's all, all kinds of things that might uh, be important in explaining this. But once again, I think we ought to be bothered by that. I think we ought to be convicted by that a little bit, not offended by that. And if your reaction immediately is to, is to make explanations and, and to be defensive about why that's not true, that we're uncaring and unhopeful and unfriendly and not encouraging and not generous and so forth, um, it's, it's, it's probably a sign of a fruit problem, honestly, or a root problem. 
because the whole point is uh, that our, our fruit ought to be undeniable, even if people accuse us and even if people despise us. The truth of the goodness of God in us and coming out of us ought to be undeniable. That even when a charge is brought against the people of God, it can't stick because we're so uh, unquestionably, unwaveringly loving and joyful and peaceful and so forth. Well, how do we respond to all of this? I mean, um, again, confronted with the reality that we can, we can drift toward becoming all leaves and no fruit. Well, the New Testament makes clear that the, 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 the person who is genuinely born again by the Spirit of God will live a life that testifies to the transformational work that the Holy Spirit has done in his life. And so we don't respond to this kind of challenge by just resolving to do better. See, you're just, you're just gonna heap leaves upon leaves, you see, by trying to do um, externally what's not being produced internally and coming and flowing out of you internally. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. As I said earlier, the root produces the fruit. Of course, that doesn't mean that we just do nothing. This is one of the tensions in the Bible. The Bible says we are to strive after holiness. Even though it says elsewhere that, that Christ's holiness is credited to us. Both are true. That he does something in us and yet we strive to be holy as well. So we, 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 we cultivate good fruit. We cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. But to be sure, it must be a work of the Holy Spirit in us. So if fruit is lacking, we have to look to him to produce it. And that means the response, whether now or later or any time we find ourselves at this point, the response is to confess, to repent, to surrender, and to live just yielded to him. As Philippians 2 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works in and we work it out. But he's got to work it in. And that, that calls us time and time again to a place of repentance and faith, receiving what he would give us in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, in forgiveness, in uh, just healing and radical renewal, and whatever else he might give us that makes us, uh, once again, a fresh new creation transformed into the likeness of Jesus.